Okay, good morning. So, welcome everybody. Welcome those who are joining us from far and wide to Good Friday. If you have ever been with somebody as they died, those moments of death become highly imprinted on your memory. And it's almost as if you're stepping outside of time because time is stopping within your view. There is a, someone who is stepping outside of time. And if you have ever grieved uh, deeply for anyone, in the same way we have this sense that I think uh, Good Friday gives us through the liturgy and through the scriptures of the, the true meaning of what the passion narrative is and what we've been saying in this week is that the meaning of the passion narrative is uh, an illumination uh, of the human condition, what it is to be human, to live and to die and to love and to suffer and to uh, celebrate and community and so on. So all of these are brought together in this, these short moments, really, of uh, Jesus' life. But all the Gospels give, a, in a sense, a disproportionate amount of space to describing uh, the last hours or the last moments of Jesus' life compared with the other passages we remember for, for 30 years. Uh, we know nothing uh, about him. For most of the public ministry, we, we know relatively little. But those last moments, last hours of his life, become highly charged with vivid and moving uh, significance. So let's, uh, let's listen to this uh, description of the death of Jesus by uh, St. Mark. So he's gone through the false trial, he's been uh, abused, and he has shown us the silence of his contemplative consciousness, how he is present to what is happening. He's not swayed by anger or bitterness or despair. He's He's um, not indifferent to it, he's feeling, obviously, but he is uh, contemplative in the midst of this storm. Then they took him out to crucify him. A man called Simon from Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they pressed him into service to carry his cross. There are details like that uh, throughout the Gospels which remind us that the Gospels were originally an oral transmission. <coughs> People sat around and uh, shared their memories and the memories were formulate, formulated and passed on by word of mouth. And so we have this character called Simon from Cyrene who we know nothing else about except that he was the father of uh, two sons. Uh, who happened to be passing through uh, 
and they pressed him into service to carry Jesus' cross. Which they brought him to a, the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. He was offered drugged wine, but he would not take it. There's no explanation of why he didn't take this, which would have you know, put him out. Um, but clearly, it's worth mentioning. Then they fastened him to the cross. They divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should have. So this is a detail we find in all the gospel stories, I think. Um, but here it's given without the, the, the added um, remark that we find in Matthew, for example, this was to fulfill the prophecy. So it's, uh, we, we, we see in this story many little memories and shreds of memory that almost a shorthand, uh, probably for a, a longer and fuller description of the event that might have taken place one-to-one uh, -one or, or in a group. The hour of the crucifixion was nine in the morning, and the inscription giving the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. And again, the two thieves, we, we don't see or hear any more from them, but in other accounts, there is this exchange between Jesus and the, the good thief. The passers-by hurled abuse at him. The cruelty of public executions and the um, voyeurism of it, even in some parts of the world today, and, even, and in uh, West, the Western world uh, up until, I don't know when the last public execution was, maybe early 19th century. But the attraction of the judicial murder or the judicial killing of another human being and the ability, the, the, the freedom to, to hate this person or to vent on this individual you know, who may be being hung for sheep, sheep stealing, uh, to vent all one's anger, sadness, uh, confusion and rage and despair, to, to vent it all against this helpless, hopeless person. Not the most attractive quality of human beings, but a very universal one. And one that, that explains some of the meaning of, this, of the story of Jesus as the scapegoat. Uh, as we all create all our organizations and institutions and nations easily create scapegoats out of the helpless and the vulnerable and the innocent. Ha-ha, they cried, wagging their heads. You'd pull down the temple, would you, and build it in three days. So come down from the cross and save yourself. And the chief priests and the doctors of the law jested with one another, so a little more civilized, educated people, but still uh, watching and, and laughing. So he saved others, <laughs> but he cannot save himself. 
So let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. If we see that, we shall believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. So, a, a, a scene, not the kind of death we would like to have. Surrounded by people who love us, uh, cared for, uh, respected, as we move into that sacred moment where time stops. Whenever time stops, there is a sacred sense of the sacred. Uh, so not the kind of death we would, ha would like to have, we would like to give to those who die. The worst kind of death we could imagine. At midday, darkness fell over the whole land, which lasted till three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, uh, there are very few words of Jesus in Aramaic in the Gospels, and, um, or anywhere in the Greek texts. Maranatha is, of course, an Aramaic word, the language that he spoke, the language he would have, his sort of mother tongue. And uh, so here, he's, he's, he's speaking, uh, but quoting scripture. This isn't, a, as it were, just a personal cry. It's, it's, it's the cry of a people whose collective experience is present in the scripture, illuminating individual experience. And his last words uh, in this gospel are this statement of abandonment. But it's a cry directed towards God. <coughs> Paradox. Some of the passers-by, on hearing this, said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Kind of an interesting little detail, really, in, in the sense that uh, he has been constantly misunderstood, even at the very end of his life. People aren't getting what he's really saying, adding, if he was able to have heard that, adding to that sense of isolation, there's something very lonely about saying something that you really want to communicate and it's either ignored, of course, or maybe even worse when it's misunderstood. A man came running with a sponge soaked in sour wine on the end of a cane and held it to his lips. Let us see, he said, if Elijah is coming to take him down. So here what sounds like a, a small gesture of compassion turns out to be another um, form of uh, ridicule and abuse. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and died. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw how he died, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. So, there is this uh, definitive moment of death, the last breath. And as long as there is breath, however painful our breathing may be, as long as there is breath, we are alive. We're still in touch with human community, fellowship, relationship, even, even if it's as damaged as it, as it is in this case. But there is a last breath, inevitably and universally, for each of us. And that is the frontier. So the, the gospel uh, account here has, has two add-ins, symbolic statements. At midday, darkness fell over the land, which lasted for three hours. Um, symbolic statement of the three hours on the cross, which for Pilate was surprisingly short. He was, he was, in another account, he was amazed that Jesus died so quickly. Uh, and then this other, more theological statement, which is not meant to be taken literally, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So, there are two, and then the centurion, the Roman centurion, uh, sees how he dies and affirms him as, as a son of God. So two, two points that say something about the, if the meaning of this individual death. One is the transformation of the religious context in which all of this is seen to be happening. A break with the past, a new beginning, and also the fact that the, the meaning of this event has already begun to seep out beyond the confines of that religious and cultural tradition in that little place near the garbage dump of Jerusalem, Golgotha, uh, it's already begun to seep out into the, into the world, into the bigger world, through this Roman soldier, who also becomes a, f a figure of legend in other, in other accounts. So, so this, is the, this is what we contemplate and reflect on uh, today. Whenever we experience loss, we experience a moment or two, more or less intense, of anguish, uh, of wishing that it hadn't happened, of frustration, maybe of anger, uh, of panic, or hopelessness. And these, this 
we feel this uh, even with relatively small losses, like losing your, your, your car keys just as you're about to go out, or losing your passport uh, just before you leave for the airport, um, or losing your job, or losing, what else do we lose? Well, we lose people, we may lose friends through misunderstanding, through argument, through or the loss, the death of those we love. But in, in each of these, there is a, there's this experience of loss uh, is repeated in different ways and different kinds of intensity. And because they are linked, so when you lose your car keys, you can go into a, a wild panic, which, uh, because it reminds you or touches deeper memories of loss, that moment where you realize that you were separated from what you thought you were united to, from what you assumed would always be there, or you didn't want to imagine what it would be like if it, if it or that person was not there for you. You just didn't want to think about it. And so when it happens, uh, a snap occurs, and that is a trauma, it's a, it's a pain, it throws us into uh, a disorder, a chaos of mind. We rely upon a whole lot of assumptions and a whole lot of minor uh, self-deceptions in order to, uh, to keep us going and avoid this fear uh, of loss. There are a number of parables, a group of parables, beginning with the parable of the lost sheep uh, the woman who loses the coin, and then, of course, the prodigal son. My son was lost and is found, was died and is come back to, to me. So in, in the prodigal son, of course, is the, the most, the richest of, the story of these parables, um, but each of them points to the same experience, that is an in inevitable, indelible part of the human condition. That is the experience of loss. It's not the same as renunciation, because the renunciation is a voluntary loss, and in a sense, a voluntary death. When we meditate, we are renouncing our attachments to our possessions and even to our our, 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 um, to all our attachments. That's a voluntary thing. We find it difficult. find it difficult to take the attention off our thoughts. Power of distraction, the power of attachment is very strong. But we persevere with that work because a deeper knowledge informs us that this is the right thing to do and it is, it is going to free us. It is going to teach us a fundamental lesson that the story today tells us uh, this weekend that uh, loss is transitional. It, 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 it leads us into a, a period of disorder, a period of doubt, of chaos maybe, and that is what Holy Saturday uh, will 
symbolize that period in between where we have lost what we had and cannot find it again. But then that is, afraid that's me, uh, that is um, consumed, that loss is then consumed and the anguish that comes from it in finding, in all of these stories, these parables, loss leads to finding. Now these parable stories, it's, we find what has, exactly what has been lost. But we have been changed through the experience of loss. And we see the meaning of what we had or have differently. Uh, we see our relationship to what was lost very differently after it has been let go of or lost and then rediscovered. And this is what, this, this experience of loss uh, applies to the smallest things in our lives. When you lose, you lose someone's name or you lose a word that you're looking for, it comes back that in that moment of recovery, of finding again, there is a, a surge of joy, of reconnection, the joy of the resurrection, of finding again, but also a new way of looking at it. We have gone through something, loss, death, separation, and this applies even or even especially mysteriously to our relationship to those we love who have died. They don't come back in the same way. We don't find them again as we knew them before. And that's going to be true of the resurrection itself. But uh, there is a uh, a, a, a rediscovery. So there are low points in the cycle of life where, like the low point here on the cross, where we need companionship. In these times of loss, it is the human uh, the deepest human uh, need is not to be left alone. Even though we have to go through the loss alone, we need companionship in that solitude. Not to die alone and not to grieve alone. And grief itself, and we'll, we'll see the, the family and the friends of Jesus grieving for him in these, this time, this period, indeterminate period after his death. But grief itself is a form of dying. It's as if part of the power of death has entered into us, the survivor. We're survivors, but we are not left untouched. We ourselves, part of us dies, has died. So dying, uh, in the meaning we can see in this, in this uh, story, is a transition. It's part of life. 
we are terrified by our ultimate last breath because we can't see beyond it. But actually, we are living with death continually. Every breath we take is, is a, every, breath, every breath we breathe out before the next one comes in, 20,000 times a day, I think it is, uh, is a reminder of our mortality, of our fragility, and of the fact that we are living with death constantly. Death is part of life. We fear death because we fear change, although we need change to be alive, but we fear change that we cannot control. And the experience of loss is the, the loss of control. The fear of death is our deepest repression, our deepest fear. We don't think or talk about it very much unless at certain periods of our life when we're going through grieving or when we are facing the death of someone we love or we face a reminder of our own mortality. Um, otherwise, we keep this fear out of sight. We have to get on with things, have to get, move on with life. There is an alternative to this recommended by the spiritual traditions, all the great religious wisdoms, which is that rather than repressing the fear of death, we should be keeping death constantly before our eyes, as St. Benedict says. I think we heard that last night uh, at Paul's oblation. The uh, reminder, the tools of good works, one of the, one of the skillful means, as the Buddhists would call it, or the tools of good works, is to keep death constantly before our eyes. Now, to the modern mind, this is rather morbid. Why should, we, why should we be thinking about death all the time? Well, it, it doesn't say think about death all the time. It, it's saying to keep it before our eyes because it is part of life. We would be able to see what is the meaning of life, the full meaning, the full texture the full light and shade of life, if we uh, keep ourselves open to the reality of dying, continuous dying, and, and don't repress it. Um, if we do repress it, it comes back to haunt us in other ways, either in hypochondria or in uh, obsession with violence and death in entertainment. Now we entertain ourselves on the TV all the time with uh, movies about dying and horrible ways of dying. The more graphic, the more entertaining they are. So all of that betrays uh, what has happened in our culture, which is a loss of this wisdom. The wisdom that we see in the way this description of the death of Jesus is told. Um, the wisdom I think I've always found here in the Irish attitude to death compared with the English attitude. The English attitude is really death as a slight embarrassment, like Brexit, you know, like leaving and so on. And uh, 
we sort of try not to talk about it. And, uh, but the Irish uh, have a, and, and other cultures, of course, uh, maybe because of the, the, the strong per pervasive faith that enter has entered, that is part of the culture, and the familiarity with these stories that shape our thinking, shape our emotional responses to the events in our lives. Maybe because of that, uh, much more open, much more healthy, really, attitude towards death, the, the dead body, uh, which in, maybe I think in, in maybe Anglo-Saxon and uh, American cultures is, is sort of swept away as quickly as possible, uh, whereas in other cultures the, the body remains for a period of time um, a, a physical connection that can be touched and so on. So all of this is clearly present in the in this story. But the fear of death is reduced and taken out of its hiding place by keeping death before our eyes. Not thinking about it all the time, but seeing it to be present and living with its reality. And that's what we do when we meditate and why meditation gradually erodes this fear of death, which is in all of us, whatever culture you belong to, we all fear it. And because we are living with it, we are living it, becoming familiar with it every time we say the mantra. For those who have been left behind, death shatters routines. And routines are our great security systems the habits we get into, habits of sharing a life with a person in a particular way, habits economic and social and familial and so on, the habits that allow us to, to build a life. And when that is, when the cornerstone of that is taken away uh, by death, everything for the time being anyway uh, falls apart and then returns. So everything just falls apart and the, the routines of our lives are shattered and we face chaos. The, the chaos uh, when the security systems break down. So these are some of the ways we might look at the meaning of, uh, of Good Friday. Important, I think, is not just to see it in terms of suffering. At the liturgy of the Passion at three o'clock uh, in the church, we will um, repeat the story once again. We may pick up something, if we pay attention, we'll pick up something we didn't see before, hear before, be moved by it in some way. But then the, the critical moment in the liturgy is where we, we, we also we have communion. I don't actually think we shouldn't have communion on Good Friday, but we do. I think people, <laughs> uh, we don't say Mass on Good Friday uh, for a good reason, because that, what we are seeing is the meaning of the Mass. But anyway, this is the custom, so we, we have communion. But the critical moment of the liturgy is really, I think, where we are invited to come up and venerate the cross. 
And the cross we'll have today is not a crucifix with a portrayal of Jesus crucified, but a, uh, just a simple cross, the great symbol. And we are, we are invited to come up as an expression of our personal relationship to the mystery that it puts before us. We don't have to say what we believe, we don't have to answer any catechism uh, questions rightly, uh, and we don't have to say anything. We just come forward if we wish, and in some simple way, venerate the cross, touch the cross, or kiss the cross. And it reminds us that, it's, that it is not suffering, physical suffering or anguish, that is the main meaning of Good Friday. The main meaning is how we see what it allows us to see that we didn't see before. That is, before our eyes, but we didn't see it. We, have to, we, we are invited to see how he died. And rather than getting caught up merely in the details of his suffering, imagining them, that may be of value, kind of bringing it alive to us, but it isn't the main purpose of Good Friday or our devotion to the cross. It's not to uh, concentrate imaginatively upon the, the suffering, but it's to see the love that it channels, that it expresses, and the love which did not leave him, even as he went through all of the stages of the passion narrative of his story. The love did not leave him, however shaken he was. And that love is reflected in what he doesn't do. He doesn't escape. He, uh, he doesn't even take the, the, the drug drink uh, symbol. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't take painkillers, but the symbolism of this is that he, he doesn't escape. Uh, that he doesn't vent his anger and bitterness and hatred and despair. He expresses that feeling of abandonment, which is pure honesty, is actually a pure expression of love, because this is what I feel. You, you, uh, sometimes the test of love and the test of friendship is to say exactly what you're feeling however inappropriate or embarrassing or dangerous it may be. Just to say it is a declaration of love and a risk of love. Anyway, so it's what he doesn't do, but it is also <coughs> the forgiveness, the compassion, the contemplative stillness that he... Uh, that he shows throughout this period. In the uh, letter to the Philippians, there is in the Greek a word called kenosis, which means um, emptying. 
And uh, I'll just find it here for you. And this is a theological way. There's no explanation for this any more than there's an explanation of why, what it feels like to be with someone when they die or to face one's own mortality or one's own dying. There's no explanation for that. It's only the isness of it, the fact that it's happening and the fact that you are present to it and not hiding, denying or running away from it. But here is a theological uh, term which can give the mind perhaps something to work on. Let your bearing towards one another arise out of your life in Christ Jesus. Because the divine nature was his from the first, yet he did not think to snatch at equality with God, but made himself nothing, or another translation, emptied himself, assuming the nature of a slave. Bearing the human likeness, revealed in human shape, he humbled himself and in obedience accepted even death, death on a cross. Therefore God raised him to the heights and bestowed on him the name above all names. So, the theology here expresses both the original nature of Jesus as the Son of God, sharing in the divine nature, but God and its emptying himself of that in Jesus. So the, the, the incarnation, the physical uh, embodiment of Jesus both reveals the divine and hides the divine. It, um, it, 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 is a, it is a manifestation of God's emptying, God's emptiness, a very important term in many wisdom traditions used differently, but here it's used to describe what God does in order to become human in Jesus. For Jesus to be the full revelation of God as Christian faith uh, makes clear, <clears throat> there has to be this unimaginable kind of reversal, putting, putting God into reverse and emptying himself of his divinity in order to become human, but in doing so reveals the divine through the paradox of the, of the human divine nature. So there's a self-emptying which is the very, you know, way in which uh, the, the, the incarnation happens, but it's the same self-emptying that happens in the passion in the cross. So having emptied himself of his divinity and become the Word made flesh, Jesus then goes on to empty himself in, in his death. He would have died anyway as a human being, but it's the way he died and the self-emptying that he 
turns it into that makes this a Good Friday and the most significant of the billions of human deaths that have happened. So it's not suffering that is the main meaning of Good Friday, but, but the love that is revealed paradoxically and maybe shockingly in the self-emptying process. And it's this that allows us to look at the theological idea of sin in a healthy way. It is not healthy, I don't think, for us to look at the cross and say, this is um, punishment uh, taken on by Jesus. He's paying the debt for us. You know, I, I went bankrupt. The banks were about to close in on me. And God suddenly appears and pays off the debt uh, because of sin. It, 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 it's a way of putting it, there's a certain value in the metaphor maybe, but it's, it's certainly not the best metaphor, it seems to me, to understand the meaning. But sin is a reality nonetheless. After all, Jesus wouldn't be on the cross if it were not for sin. If, if he was put into the hands of sinful men, it says in scripture. So, um, but it, it, the cross also today allows us to see the reality, or maybe the unreality of sin, or the, certainly the power of sin, of injustice, of cruelty, of all the things that we are most ashamed of in being human, and that when we see examples of around us, or in the media, we say we are shocked and we are astounded that human beings could act in this way. So, we don't have to deny the, the fact of sin and darkness and evil in the world. But it's how we see the cross that enables us to understand what sin means and how we actually deal with it, how God actually deals with it, which is not punishment. The cross looks like a punishment, but it's not a divine punishment. It's the human way of avoiding the truth. And it, all of this is exposed. As soon as we touch the essential dynamic of, the, of, of Good Friday, through our own experience, when we see that this is speaking to our human condition, it's illuminating, touching it. It's meaningful for each one of us and for all of us. As soon as we get that glimpse of the connection, then all the rest begins to flow. And we have both a sense of wonder and mystery, but also a sense of something actually being communicated to us. Let's just end with this uh, short uh, reading from the uh, Tao Te Ching, one of the great um, Chinese wisdom texts. It's about emptiness. As I was saying, 
the cross and is the illustration, uh, the symbol of this self-emptying of God and of the man Jesus. Thirty spokes unite around one hub to make a wheel. It is the presence of the empty space that gives the function of a vehicle. Clay is molded into a vessel. It is the empty space that gives the function of a vessel. Doors and windows are chiseled out to make a room. It is the empty space in the room that gives it function. Therefore, something substantial can be beneficial, while the emptiness of void can be utilized. Read that again before we meditate. So let's take a couple of minutes to <coughs> prepare for meditation. <coughs> 